Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. How are you all today? We'll just answer one at a time. We'll start down here. Um, Yeah. Are you glad to be with God's people today? I am. Are you you ready to hear what the Spirit would say to the church in preaching of his word today? I am too. I'm I'm interested to see where this sermon goes. I know where it's going to start. Lord, I center myself before you this morning. And one more time, ask for the infilling of your Holy Spirit. I don't want to preach my bright ideas about Isaiah. Instead, I pray that the word of truth written in these pages would be breathed into my heart today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, let, me, let me first locate us and tell you where we are as, as the sermon begins. Um, I, I'm a little bit all over the map over the last few weeks, okay? If we look back to Advent uh, last fall, the, that season that was leading us up to Christmas, we focused on the book of Isaiah, And uh, a guy who lived 700 years before Jesus, who had an awful lot to say to the people of God, and the part that we usually grab a hold of and hang on to from Isaiah's book, if we know anything about Isaiah's book, it's probably that he said that a grand fixer was coming, this Messiah character who would come and begin to right some of the historic wrongs in Israel. As Isaiah wrote about this Messiah, this grand fixer, uh, he also uh, talked about some other things. But for the most part, we push that aside because we like the message of this world getting straightened out, right? We like the idea of God himself sending somebody who's specially called, specially equipped, has incredible power to come and make things like they were supposed to be all along. What's interesting, however, is that for the prophet Isaiah, it's true actually for all of the prophets and the books of the prophets that we have printed in the pages of Scripture. Hello. Okay, good. Uh, One thing that you have to know that's true of the prophet Isaiah, true of all of the other prophets in Scripture as well, is that uh, it was only a minor part of their job, this business of foretelling or predicting the future. When you and I use the word prophet to describe anyone, we usually think, oh, this is a person who knows the future and can accurately tell us what is going to happen. And while the prophets uh, recorded in Scripture did that thing and did it perfectly accurately, that was only a small part of their job. The biggest part of their job wasn't prognosticating about the future. It was calling the people back to faithfulness to God. It wasn't saying, be on the lookout for X on the horizon. It was saying, look, there's sin in your life right now. It's sin among our people. And yes, God is going to do something about that out there in the future, but he's calling us to do something about it now. Come back to faithfulness to God. That is the overall and predominant message of the book of Isaiah and of all of the other prophets in the New Testament. Today I want to go back to Isaiah, like we did back in in Advent. And I want to take us to chapter 49. And you don't know anything about chapter 49. You never learned a a memory verse in children's church or Sunday school or vacation Bible school from Isaiah chapter 49. Some of you may be hearing these words for the very first time in your life. I got to tell you, I get lost in Isaiah. I argue with my good friend Harold about what what are the best books in the Bible. But I think we've both decided that Isaiah doesn't make the top two. Um, Isaiah, for me, way down the list because it's, you know, 66 chapters long and somewhere in the middle of it, I, th- I say, well, I, I think I kind of got the message. Could we please move on? I don't know how many times, however, I've read the, the Bible from beginning to end and therefore the book of Isaiah from beginning to end. And this week when I read chapter 49, I swear it was the first time I ever heard its message. 
what you got to know about the chapter before we can read it well is this that here's the Isaiah here's the prophet Isaiah okay filled with God's holy spirit he's calling the people back to faithfulness to God he also can peer down the timeline of history into the future and as he looks down that timeline he does talk to us about the coming of Messiah he also then talks to us a little bit about the Messiah's work, his saving work among God's people. Beyond that, he tells us a little bit about how Messiah feels about his work, or did at one point. And at the very end, he tells us about how God responds to the Messiah who feels the way he feels about his work. So this morning's message is really a meditation on Jesus, um, we're putting words, the prophet is, putting the words in Jesus' mouth because Jesus hasn't been born yet. This is written 700 years before. And through that prophetic lens, he can, he can see the person and the work and, and the heart and mind of the Messiah. Listen to this. Listen to me, all you in distant lands. This is the Messiah speaking. Listen to me, all you in distant lands. Pay attention, you who are far away. The Lord called me before my birth. From within the womb, he called me by name. He made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. He's hidden me in the shadow of his hand. I'm like a sharp arrow in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, and you will bring me glory. And I replied, but my work seems so useless. I've spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose, yet I leave it all in the Lord's hand. I will trust God for my reward. And now the Lord speaks, the one who formed me in my mother's womb to be his servant, who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. The Lord has honored me. My God has given me strength. He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I'll make you a light to the Gentiles, and you'll bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, says to the one who is despised and rejected by the nations, to the one who is the servant of rulers, kings will stand at attention when you pass by. Princes will also bow low because of the Lord, the faithful one, the holy one of Israel, who has chosen you. This is the word of the Lord. It's an interesting passage. Uh, Biblical scholars wrestle with it all of the time, uh, trying to, to, to argue and figure out who it is that's really supposed to be speaking here. Is this Isaiah? Is it Isaiah putting the words in the mouth of the Messiah? Is it, is it some other author who uh, got a, a guest-starring role for just a moment? Is it Israel as a people? And uh, if you want to be really bored, just uh, grab about 14 commentaries and read what they have to say about who's who there. But um, the preponderance of them seem to agree that, that this is the prophet Isaiah looking down the timeline. He's, he's predicted the coming of this Messiah, and now he's going to tell you what this Messiah is like and what he intends to do and what life is like for him as he tries to do his work. And and so the passage begins with Jesus contemplating his entrance into this world and his work within it. And and he has this understanding, it seems, of of what it is, of who he's supposed to be and what it is that he's supposed to do. He said, "I, I know how it's supposed to go. I'm supposed to be like a really sharp arrow. I'm supposed to be like a really useful and effective weapon in the Heavenly Father's arsenal. And because I'm so effective at doing what he sent me to do, um, I'm, I'm supposed to cause other people to think very well of him. I'll do what I do. I'll do it well. And because of that, God will get glory. That's how the deal is supposed to go. The problem is that the, uh, the voice speaking, the Messiah says, it's just not how it went, though. 
Because I knew what I was supposed to do. I know who I'm supposed to be. I know how history's supposed to unfold, but it hasn't. Instead, I came and I did my best. I, I labored long and hard. I stayed focused. I turned down the temptation. I stayed on my mission. And it didn't do any good. I failed. You ever thought about Jesus feeling like a failure before? Think about it. Think about it. Jesus lived in this world that was broken down and torn apart by sin. And do you think for a second that everything went perfectly the way that he wanted it to while he was here? Is that the way you read the story of the life of Jesus? And they lived happily ever after. There was very little happily ever after. And so this Jesus that we have, we've been taught in the Christian church for 2,000 years is, is fully God, but also fully human. He wrestles with the reality of, I was faithful to the Father. I said what I was supposed to say. I did the things I was supposed to do. I stayed away from the things that I wasn't supposed to do. When it came right down to it, I laid my life on the line. I laid my life down. I took the horrible suffering. I loved fully and completely. And it was a waste of my time. Hmm. Why in the world would, would Jesus feel like he'd wasted his time or been the grand cosmic failure? Maybe just uh, back off a little bit from, you know, sitting in church with good churchy people for a minute and take a look at the world around us. Are you dismayed about your world today? Yeah, I believe God is too. Do you, do you look at it and see that it's, it's broken and cracked and bleeding? Yeah, he does too. Do you look at it and see that it's systems no worky? I mean, other than government, that's squared away, right? Oh, well, if government doesn't work, at least, you know, um, health care does. No, well, that didn't work either, but at least everyone's got plenty of money. And all the marriages. Can you see a little bit about why Jesus might have done what he, what he did? And then looks back at it and goes, for what? A human being wrestling with the fact that what he did, he did faithfully but not as effectively as he had hoped to. You see, the scriptures paint this picture that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. You've read that, right? But you've buried your loved ones who didn't know him, right? We've got this Messiah here. He knows his purpose. He knows his identity. He knows his mission. And he knows that it just didn't exactly go the way that it was supposed to. I think that you and I have some things in common with the Messiah. Hopefully a lot. Hopefully more each day as you grow more and more like him. But I think from, from this passage, we can see three things that each of us has in common with the Messiah. The first is this, what I've been talking about. Have you ever felt like a failure? Have you ever felt like you failed God? Can, can I just be a little confessional this morning? I've told a couple of people in my life in recent days, I have never felt like more of a failure in my life than I do right now. I have never felt less effective in ministry than I do right now. I read this passage this week and I thought, he's been reading my mail. Who is this, who is this one who, who says, it was all for nothing, it was, I've labored in vain, my work seems, hmm, and like I spent my strength for, uh, because I can identify with him. You ever felt 
like you just weren't whatever enough? Ever felt the sting of failure? Does it haunt you a little bit in your waking hours and in your sleeping hours? If so, know this. You've got something in common with Jesus. Jesus wrestles with the state of this world and his redemptive work within it. At least the prophet inspired by God's Holy Spirit said that he did. As I've wrestled with uh, this feeling of failure and ineffectiveness in my life right now, the one, one thing that I have in common with the Messiah, I have decided that I will also have a second thing in common with him. The second thing that I will have in, in common with him is found in verse 4. It, it leads off with all the bad stuff, right? I replied, but my work seems so useless. I've spent my strength for nothing to no purpose. Listen, though. Listen. He turns it on a dime right here. He says, yet I leave it all in the Lord's hand, and I will trust God for my reward. If you find yourself in the place of having one thing in common with the Messiah, and it's the business that, that you're, you're wrestling with ineffectiveness, you're, you're looking over your shoulder at 2016 and going, I didn't get the job done in 2016, and I'm hoping that this year is different than the last one. If you're wrestling at all with feelings of failure or inadequacy, I suggest to you that you join me in making a, a second, and in, in grabbing a hold of a second thing that you and I can have in common with the Messiah. You can give it to God and leave it there. You can take the the, the sting and the regret and the shame, the doubts, and you can take them to the feet of Jesus and leave them there. I seem to pick them up and pack them around uh, now and again, and and I have to be reminded, hey, you, you, you laid that down. But I invite you to join me in having a second thing in common with the Messiah, and that is if you're struggling with any of those things today, before you leave here, leave those things with God. As I was reading this passage, and it was, uh, it was hooking me hard, right? I mean, just grabbing me right where I live. There was this phrase that kept bubbling up to the surface. I read and reread this passage. It it shows up in verse 1. It shows up in verse 5. And it has something to do with a womb. In in verse 1, the Messiah is saying, The Lord called me before my birth. From within the womb, he called me by name. We get to verse 5, and he says, And now the Lord speaks, the one who formed me in my mother's womb. It's an interesting idea, and because you probably know the Christmas story, and you're, you're familiar with the idea of, of God coming to a virgin girl and saying you're going to be pregnant in a mystical, magical kind of way, and the one who is conceived in you is born of the Holy Spirit. Because of that, you've looked at Jesus your whole life as having, well, you know, an unfair advantage in the uh, temptation against sin department. But Christian teachers down through the ages and the the scriptures themselves teach us that just as Jesus was fully God, he was also fully human. And when you get to Philippians chapter 2, the the apostle Paul says, I want to make sure you understand what it means to have a fully human Jesus. And in chapter 2, he lists this, this, uh, several verses. He goes on and on about how Jesus emptied himself emptied himself of all of the unfair advantages of godhood. He said, Jesus, while he was here, decided that equality with God was not something to grasp and hold on to. Instead, he emptied himself and became like like a servant, like the rest of us. So, what kind of a Messiah is he? The writer to the Hebrews says, yeah, he's just like us. He had to wrestle with temptation, and he's like us. Now, listen, you got to get this. It's the most important 
uh, part of the Christian message you'll ever get. Because if you don't get this, you can't get the rest of Jesus. He's like us. He's like us. The good news is that he is like us. Not sort of like us, but with unfair advantages. Not sort of like us, but with a trump card. He became like us. The flip side of that means that you are like him. Get a hold of that today. That's gospel truth. If he's like you, you are like him. And the third thing that you can have in common, that you do have in common with the Messiah today is this. Like Jesus, God was involved in forming you. You see, as you look at your life's work, as you look at the things that you struggle with from day to day, as you look at your inadequacies and failures, you need to know something. Those matter very little in light of this one fact. God made you. The God who is perfect, who doesn't mess anything up. The God who is all-knowing and works with this really broken system and world of ours. He made you. And because of that, there is an internal condition to you that gives you an unfair advantage over the sin and brokenness of this world. And here's what it is. Uh, In Latin, it's called imago dei. It, It means the image of God. Then when God made you, he made, he made uh, dogs and he made cats. Sometimes I wonder about the cat thing. Does that really come from He made dogs and cat, elephants, um, ze- all the zebra people, he made zebras, okay? If you love zebras, God made them. Um, don't, don't understand mosquitoes either, but okay. He made all these things. And then he made human beings and he said, I want to make them different. We're going to make them like us, he said to the other members of the Godhead. Like us. And it's why, above all other things in all of creation, you have special favor in God's sight. It's why human beings are his most favorite of all of it. I'm sure he likes puppies. I'm sure he's responsible for some of the kitten memes that are all over everywhere. But they are not his favorite. His favorite are human beings. Because when he looks at them, he sees himself. You know how it is when you see your kids... And, and somebody else sees your kids and they go, man, he's just like you. Heart swells up and, and then at time, yeah. And then afterwards you're like, oh, I hope he's not just like me because, yeah. But there's this love and this, this thing that swells up in our hearts, this joy that happens whenever, whenever we recognize that our, our children are like us. Listen, God has that very same experience when he looks at you. And so... Look, God, God's not stupid and he's not a chump. So he can see where you failed and goes, yep, that's failure. He can see sin and he goes, yep, sin for sure. But those are not the last word with him. The last word is, but she's my daughter. But he's my son. So, all right, failures of the day, shuck them. You're still my daughter, you're still my son. And the love of the Father for the children that he sees are like him is the last word of the day every day. I'm sure after Jesus had his little fit here of, well, I was offered nothing, God the Father said, well, you didn't bat a thousand, but um, let's go get some more. And I love you. This third thing that we have uh, that makes us like, like him is of crucial importance. I, I think all three of them are, but, but the third one I think is, is most important, functionally speaking. is the first one that um, you may have in common with Jesus, that you, you share with him this frustration and uh, feelings of failure. Well, that doesn't help anybody. <laughs> Just, it doesn't help anybody. 
And, and, and the fact that, that he comes alongside, if you read the next few uh, verses, you'll see that God says, yeah, don't worry about the failures. You're going to get the job done. As we go forward from here, I go with you, and you will do more than what I called you to. What he said to, to Messiah was, you're not just going to call Israel. You think you failed in, in bringing Israel back to me? Well, guess what? You're going to do better than that. You're going to bring Israel and all the Gentiles. It's not done yet. But the success is coming. The victory is coming. When, when you get the, um, the reassurance from God that the stuff in the past is going to be okay, that's great, but it leaves you at ground zero. That, that's just dealing with the stuff of the past. But it's the third thing, the third way that you're like Jesus that becomes a, a, a change agent that, that functionally makes history turn on a dime, meaning this, it has an effect from here forward. Cliff, how can the Imago Dei, me being created in the image of God, how is that really going to make a difference tomorrow? Here's the answer. You have to, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about nothing changes in your life till you change your mind, right? Transformation, Romans chapter 12, transformation by renewing of your mind. Nothing changes till you change your mind. You have to change the way you think about you. The way you think about you has to now include this incredible catalog item, the image of God. You are like him and he is like you. But here's where the change comes. The change the change must, here's where the change must come. We must learn to recognize the image of God in the other people around us. We must learn to recognize the image of God in the people around us because in the moment that we do, we will begin to love them. We will, be, we will quit seeing them as them in the us-them opposition. And we will treat them differently. Can you see that there's about, oh, 140 us and them groups in our country right now, deeply divided? I mean, like this, this great union that we had seems to be descending in, back into tribalism. But when you look at another group and you say they're them and we're us, it's because we have failed to see they're all us. Because all of us are created in the image of God. And now I'm going to take this somewhere really, really pointed, okay? Recognizing the image of God in every other human being most definitely should change the way that you treat your wife and kids, your husband and children. It should change the temperature of your home. It should change the way that you do business. You should become a better employer or employee because you recognize the image of God. You see the image of God in your boss, and so you treat him with respect instead of soaking him for all you can and running him down behind his back. You become a better employer because those, those people who work for you, they're not just a means to an end. They're not the, the, the engine that gets you rich. They're the people who matter to whom God has given you, uh, for whom God has given you great responsibility and great opportunity to bless them. Those other kids at school, ones who dress funny, smell funny, talk funny, the image of God. The image of God. So instead of avoiding, instead of laughing, they are us and one of us. If you really think, if you really come to believe that you are like God made in his image, you will take his view of other people. And here's the really pointed part. This includes the unborn Listen, I know that uh, people get pregnant via a lot of different circumstances. I mean, the mechanics are the same, but the circumstances are different. And it's always the circumstances that seem to determine for us whether there's great joy or an oh no. 
Isaiah, speaking about you know, putting words in the mouth of Jesus, said Jesus was of this mind that he was made by God in his mother's womb. Well, yeah, that's just Jesus, and he had, you know, Holy Spirit. So, wild card, sorry, Cliff, that doesn't mean it's true of me, I throw it out. Well, the problem is that you read it lots of other places in Scripture where it's talking about all of us. Uh, Psalm um, 139, God put me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, right? He, that was his nickname. He was the whining prophet. The guy always said, I can't do this. It's too hard. They won't listen. I'm too young. And uh, God said something to him. He said, but I made you in your mother's womb. Said it to Jeremiah. Said to Jeremiah. David wrote it as a song in the book of Psalms. Those are song lyrics. A song for everybody to sing so that everybody could learn You're put together by God. And it means something about how we view ourselves, and it means something very pointedly about how we view the unborn and their vulnerable mothers and fathers. You with me? I'm not making a, I promise, I promise I'm not making a political statement. I'm making a theological statement. I'm teaching you what is written in God's holy word. That whatever else, listen, I'll go so far as to say whatever it is that you believe about legalized abortion, I'm telling you that the people of God have an obligation to view those little unborn babies and their mamas and daddies as sacred, precious, and worthy of our love and care. Hey, guys. That's the loudest amen you ever gave me in five and a half years, and it was at just the right time. Good on you. Why am I talking about this today? I was preparing for this sermon weeks and weeks ago, and I was reading some selected texts, and, I, and this one I, I stuck, uh, it was actually assigned. There's this, there's this, this I'm going to nerd out like preacher nerd for a minute. There's a way of arranging your work. It's called a lectionary, and it has some assigned text. Guess what the assigned text for today was? Written uh, 40, 50 years ago by the guy who worked out the arrangement. It was Isaiah 49. And I think it's interesting that it falls today where I can talk to you about it in time for you to do something about it. Because a week from today, we will not celebrate, but we'll mark the 44th anniversary of Roe versus Wade and legalized abortion in America. It changed our culture. What I'm calling you to do between now and then is not protest. I'm calling on you to listen to the voice of God. And if he prompts you to move, to act, then do it. I love the fact that I get to sit up here each Sunday and look across this congregation and see numbers of adopted children. This is a church that adopts children. We've got a bunch of adopted folks among us. Why? Because we see the image of God in every child. And we say, then they're ours. Right? It wasn't pity that took you to the place of saying, we'll rearrange our whole lives. It was that we saw someone like us, like God. Just as you have in the past listened for the voice of God and then acted obediently, I just want to remind you of two things. Next week marks a day that changed our culture. And every day from here forward can change our culture as well. If the people of God will learn to look at themselves and one another as really like him and therefore worthy of respect, love, and help. I've invited my friends, uh, Scott and Suzanne Maines, to, to come here today. Uh, most of you know them. If you don't, um, they help lead what I call the Imago Dei movement in this valley. They're the people who keep reminding us that the most vulnerable are like God 
and therefore worthy of love and help. Scott is the executive director, and Suzanne is the counseling director at uh, Life Choices. And uh, some of you I know have volunteered with them. Some of you I know have um, made donations to their ministry. And I want to ask you, if God the Holy Spirit is leading you that way, would you do some more of it? But I want to ask you first to just welcome my friends to join us today. So again, good morning. You know, it was, uh, it was four years ago in 1977 that Life Choices Clinic began receiving people uh, through their doors that found themselves in an unplanned pregnancy. Um, still, some of us uh, know Life Choices by its previous name, the Pregnancy Care Center or PCC. It's very likely that some of you sitting here today may have received services from Life Choices or PCC. It's also possible that someone here is, is here among us, just sitting, who, whose mother was a young woman who came through our doors that needed hope, help, and compassion, and the courage to make a choice for life. By the way, if that's you, you have a story to tell. And I would love to talk to you about that. You know, a lot of us wish that this abortion debate would just go away. We're tired of all the controversy and the the name-calling. We're turned off by the mean-spirited labels, political bickering. And maybe you feel like I once did. You know, you have compassion for the unborn, um, but you just really haven't yet acted out on those pro-life feelings. And you'd like to do something, but it just seems, it seems like there's, just, there's really only two choices. You've got to pick a fight or just kind of leave it alone, avoid it. Well, I want to propose to you there's a third way, and it's pray and engage. Uh, this abortion issue isn't going to go away anytime soon. Even if Roe v. Wade were overturned tomorrow, We are talking about the hearts and minds of people. And the foundational question really is, who counts as one of us? Does every human being have an equal right to life? Or are our rights founded somehow upon a characteristic that may come and go during our lifetime? You know, today we consider the blights of sexism and racism as evil, and rightly so. Uh, They highlight a surface issue, but ignore the humanity that we all have inside. And the unborn share that human nature, and they deserve protection just as much as those human beings outside of the womb. Both are fully human, right? God's endowed humanity with dignity, and all humans, they have value simply because they're human. Don't pick fights over a surgical procedure. Pray and equip yourself. Get ready to engage culture on that, really a fundamental question that we are all asking ourselves, and it's, what really makes us all equal? So, how could you pray? Well, you can pray for centers like Life Choices Clinic. Under constant pressure, spiritually, financially, politically, you can pray for those who make the laws, lawmakers, jurors, who need courage to propose and sustain laws that help protect the unborn. 
You could pray for an abortion center worker that they might receive the grace, the strength, and the courage to walk away from that work. Amen? What about engaging people? What's that look like? Be equipped. Be equipped to really engage others in a loving, kind, compassionate conversation. People need to know that the pro-life view is true, it's reasonable, and it's worth believing. And at the same time, there are men and women who bear spiritual and emotional scars from their own abortion experience. And they need Christians to come alongside them full of tender, compassionate love and kindness that comes from a gospel-centered life. So if you find yourself in a conversation with someone, maybe someone hurting from that abortion experience, would you please refer them to Life Choices Clinic? We would love to have an opportunity to take them through post-abortion recovery. You can do that one-on-one or in a group setting. So to engage, it's really, we just need to simply communicate in the best way we know how and leave the rest up to God. It's not our job to change people and lives. It's his work. So there's a a couple of important updates that you need to know about Life Choices Clinic. First is we had a very serious cash crunch uh, going into the end of 2016, and and many of you prayed, and some were able to give financially. And I want you to know that God has met that need, and we will once again be open four days a week beginning later this month. And we're, we're very blessed Um, We also have a new nurse manager who just finished her training last week, and that means our ultrasound services will be back up to full strength as well, and we're really excited about that. Suzanne? So we've talked about praying, we've talked about engaging. Let's talk for a few minutes about the idea of volunteering. You knew I was going to do this, right? So that's how I started nine years ago at at Life Choices. And when I started volunteering, I kind of had this idea in my head that I was going to meet some girls who kind of made a mistake on prom night, nice middle-class girls. And very quickly, my understanding of our culture and the issues surrounding abortion radically changed. So I was 19 almost (coughs) years ago. But if I were 19 today, my worldview would probably be very different I would think that sexual activity with multiple partners is pretty normal. I would define sexual responsibility as the proper use of birth control and getting checked for STDs. That's the mantra and the religion that people hear all day long. I'd rationalize it's fine to live together, even if I was a churchgoer. And concerning abortion, I'd probably say something like, well, I wouldn't choose abortion personally, but it's, you know, it's up to the person, and I would never judge someone who, who picks that. So, see, reaching out to people in my community has changed me. Before I got involved in this ministry, I was, I was really ignorant of a lot of cultural trends. I was pretty sheltered, and I didn't understand the struggles that young Christians and non-Christians go through, and now I actually get it a little better. So maybe you're a church guy or church lady, like me, and maybe you're a little hesitant to be sort of all in with this cause of life, and I understand. It can be an intimidating prospect to think of committing yourself to this. It's not exactly popular everywhere. So let's look at some common hindrances, and it's really interesting to me how the Holy Spirit worked this morning, because hearing Cliff speak, this is just... um, a little more of the same. So hindrance number one, I feel inadequate. We did not even compare notes, okay? Um, Maybe you've never dealt with the issue of abortion up close, and it's just scary. Maybe you've been touched by it yourself, and you still carry sorrow or guilt. Or maybe you just feel a little lost as to where our culture is at, and this this whole idea of a home mission field kind of thing is a little scary for you. I want to encourage you about 
two truths about this feeling of inadequacy. And one is that it doesn't matter if you feel inadequate. You don't need to feel adequate. I've already heard this. And the other one is that you have more going on than you think. I'm going to prove it in a minute. So you don't need to feel adequate. Think about Moses, who led millions of Hebrew slaves out of captivity, guided them through a hostile wilderness, across a sea, no less, to their own homeland. And he watched God work stunning miracles through his own hands and his own voice and was one of the greatest leaders Israel would ever know. And yet... When God called him, you can read it in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, he didn't think he could stand up and talk in front of Pharaoh at all. Like, why are you picking me, God? I, I, I don't talk very well. I don't want to do this. I don't think I can do this. And sometimes we have a Moses mindset, except today it might sound like, I, I couldn't coach girls making a pregnancy decision. I, I couldn't mentor a couple in basic life skills. That's, that's just intimidating, God. Well, see, our our excuses and our hesitations and our rationalizations before God have sort of repeated themselves many times in human history. But here's the thing. This is what I want you to hear. God is not calling you to co-labor with him because he thinks you're up to the task. He's calling you precisely because he knows you're not. See, when God accomplishes his purpose... In the earth, he always chooses to do that through weak human vessels like us. He created us. He doesn't need our strengths, our abilities, our awesomeness. Okay, instead, he wants to let his strength flow through us as we learn to be dependent on him, just like our Messiah was, right? So the point is not ability, the point is availability. That's always the issue. And by the way, if you join us, we thoroughly train you in this ministry. You can even earn your own certification as a crisis pregnancy coach with the American Association of Christian Counselors. How cool is that? You can get some letters behind your name. All right, so on to you have more going on than you think. Did you know that you have a spiritual resume? You do. Maybe you never typed it up, but everything you've learned about God about his word, his ways, his kingdom, your life experience, it's all on your spiritual resume. God equips everybody that he calls, and a lot of times we are not even aware of it, about how he's preparing us until we step out and we obey, and then we see it in hindsight. It's like, oh, now I see what you were doing. So, have you ever taken a look at your spiritual resume? You might be surprised how much stuff is on there. Have you ever helped a friend through a hard time emotionally? You ever read and studied your Bible at all? You listen to Cliff's sermons? I hope so. I'm not going to forget today's for a long time. Have you raised kids? Can you read and write at a high school level? Been married for a few years? Do you know how to clean a house and pay bills and make a grocery list, cook a nutritious meal? Do you have hope and joy and peace in your life because of Christ? Because if you have any of these things going on, you've got more going on than a lot of the folks that we see. You have got the goods to help a young man rise up out of being trapped in generational poverty, to help that young couple who are struggling to just get along, or a teen girl facing a pregnancy decision. You have a lot to offer. Okay, hindrance number two, I need to take care of my own issues first. So maybe you suffer from some past abuse, maybe you've been through divorce, other wounds to your heart, and maybe you've told yourself, once I'm over this, then I can reach out and help others. You know, it's true that we're less distracted once we've had some breakthroughs in our own personal issues, right? It's also true that every single one of us sitting here today is a work in progress, a while back, a couple years ago, Scott and I got to go to North Carolina for a conference, and we got to visit the Billy Graham Library. And when we were there, we visited the grave of Ruth Graham Bell, Billy Graham's wife. And on, on her headstone are some words that she had seen on a road sign, and she'd asked to have those put on her tombstone when that time came. And so here's what her tombstone reads. Construction finished. Thank you for your patience. This is Billy Graham's wife that we're talking about. 
okay? So we are all unfinished, right? I know it's hard to minister when you still feel broken inside. It really requires trust on our part. But God deserves our yes, even when we still have unfinished business in our, in our soul and in our heart. And as we step out in faith to answer his call, he will restore us along the way. There's a story in John chapter 5 where Jesus asks the man at the pool of Bethesda, who's been laying there for 38 years, if he wants to get well. Kind of a weird question. But the sick man doesn't even answer that question. He just goes into a lengthy explanation of why he's not healed yet. In, in my twisted mind, I totally see the Jewishness coming out here. He's like, Oi, I'm laying here by the water. Nobody has time to put me in the water. I never get their voice. I'm never going to get healed. This whole universe is against me. And all he sees, there's just one window of opportunity for him to be healed in his mind. He has to get to the water first, and he doesn't have anybody, so he's caught in this in this vicious cycle, and all he's trying to do is explain his embarrassing predicament and get a little sympathy. That's all he's after. He's pretty much lost hope for getting a life or restoring his life. But note the irony here. He's explaining this to Jesus. Jesus, by whom, for whom, through whom all things were created. Jesus, who can heal any disease. And Jesus listens. And he's ready to reverse 38 years of infirmity with a word. And Jesus is listening today. He's listening to you. He's listening to the laments and the limitations and the reasons why you can't serve him just yet in this way. And he's ready to change all of that like that. Maybe in your case it's not physical sickness. Maybe it's those wounds in your heart still plaguing you. And you can, you can find coping strategies. You can lean on other people for answers. You can aim for sympathy as your highest hope. Or you can trust and obey Jesus and find your healing on the way. Let me tell you a, a story as I close. True story. 17-year-old pregnant girl comes in to see us. She is very fearful of of being judged by others. She was clearly not planning on on getting pregnant. She's crying as we talk. She's distressed. And in her mindset, she's, she's not against abortion. She thinks it's a choice women should have. And she feels like parenting is not an option for her because she has a lot of plans for her education. But from us, she learns about the risks of abortion. She lets our counselor pray for her and hug her, and and then she goes across the hall and has an ultrasound. Long story short, she decides to carry her little girl to term after that day. That little girl is three years old now, and Mommy and Daddy are married. So what if you were the one talking to that girl? What if you were the one praying for her in her decision process? What if you taught her some life skills classes for a few months? What a privilege. What an honor that would be. And you have an opportunity to impact our community and see lives transformed. So just remember these three things. Don't worry about those feelings of inadequacy. Ask God what's already on your resume, and then trust him to heal your heart as you move out in obedience. Well, just in closing, uh, we're beginning to ramp up for, with preparations for our 40th anniversary celebration that's taking place on April 6th uh, this year uh, at the Red Lion Hotel. We will have the president of CareNet, uh, Roland Warren, with us that night, uh, uh, author, speaker, leader of over 1,200 centers across the country like ours. And uh, it's going to be a very special night. Uh, but there are several things associated with that, that um, several ways you might be able to help us. Uh, one is certainly to pray. Uh, we're shorthanded. We have a short time to pull this together. Uh, we're looking also for people who have a story to tell, like I mentioned earlier. Maybe you're someone that's been touched by the Ministry of Life Choices Clinic, and we'd love to speak with you. 
we're, we're also actively seeking underwriters for this event. It, it is a free event because people pay for it, and those people are underwriters and sponsors of that event. So uh, maybe you're someone that can step up and help, help us out financially that way. Uh, thirdly, consider attending the event. Maybe you don't know anything about us. Maybe you've never really engaged with us, and, and our banquet is an especially great time to get to a, a, really a, an evening to learn about Life Choices Clinic and what we're doing in the community. Uh, maybe you've attended in the past. Bring a friend with you this time who really doesn't know about us and, and introduce them to the ministry at Life Choices. You know, we just heard some, some reasons why people may hesitate uh, to commit to various ministries, and maybe that resonates with you, and maybe God's really tugging at your heart about volunteering at the clinic. And, and you can do that in a number of ways. You can be a part of our prayer chain email uh, that gets out, uh, uh, like, almost immediately when the action is going on so that you can pray into that situation along with us. You might serve at the clinic as a class facilitator, a mentor in our Earn While You Learn program. You can help in the office. There's yard work that needs to be done. Uh, There's family store. There's laundry angel. And as Suzanne mentioned, there's the opportunity to become certified as a crisis pregnancy coach. Uh, We're also actively seeking board members. And this can be a very meaningful way for someone uh, to get involved who maybe can't be at the clinic uh, during the workday. So one last thing, I'm looking for a man, a guy who can champion our Dads in Action initiative. And uh, if you're interested in that, if you want to mentor and come alongside young men that are not probably very much like you, except that we share God's image. Come and see me. I'd love to talk to you. There's more. Um, if any of this tugs at your heart, would you just please come and see us? We'll be out in the foyer after the service, and uh, Suzanne and I would love to talk with you. Thank you for receiving us this morning. Well, this morning, um, you've heard a couple of ways that you can decide to serve. Last week, Steve Thomas and I sat up here and we had the first of a handful of dialogues that we're going to have here with the church family about service really being the truest expression of the life of Christ within us. And we begin to give our lives away to help other people. And uh, during announcements this morning, you heard that our uh, host week for Family Promise is coming up starting two weeks from today. And you heard from Scott and Suzanne a number of ways, a number of ways that you could begin to give uh, a little bit of time or a little bit of money, or you would also accept lots of time and lots of money, I assume, yeah, to, uh, because God just spoke to you and said, here's what I want you to do. But um, can I encourage you to do this? Um, don't decide without talking to Scott and Suzanne that they don't have a place for you and your unique resume, okay? I promise that when, you, uh, when they greet you in the foyer, they won't be uh, trying to chisel your information out of you, and um, you, can, you can make eye contact with them, you can speak with them, because yeah, they're real live human beings, and they would love to just meet you if you want to just bless their ministry and tell them that you love them and are praying for them, great. But ask the questions before you decide that you know the answers, okay? Um, the ushers are coming. As uh, was mentioned earlier, we're going to receive a second offering today, and it's to help with the ministry of Life Choices Clinic. Stand with me and pray with me. Lord, as we uh, stand before you this morning, we have a call to action. The very first part of that is, uh, is to recognize something. Human beings are made in your image, me and everybody else. Once we see that, Lord, we must treat one another with love, respect, and dignity.
And that's what the Mains has called us to, to join them in showing love, respect, and dignity to a people who usually don't get any. I pray your blessing upon their ministry. I pray, Lord, that you would answer the prayers that they've been praying. Just as you answered that financial prayer, I pray that you'd answer their prayer for men to step up, for folks to come and volunteer in all the ways that they mentioned. I pray, Lord, that you'd answer some of those prayers today from among us. We give, Lord, because you have given to us generously, and we want to be like you in yet another way. And so, accept these love gifts for our friends in their ministry and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.